A man was stranded on the proverbial deserted island, according to the story. He was there for many years. One day, a boat finally sailed into view. And the man frantically waved and everything he could get the attention of that boat. And he finally got the attention of the boat captain. And the boat landed on the beach. And the skipper got out to greet this stranded man on this deserted island. After a while, the rescuing sailor asked the castaway, What are these three huts that you've built on the island? The stranded man replied, Well, the first hut is my house. I live there. What's that next hut? asked the sailor. Well, I built that for my church. Well, what about the third hut? Oh, the castaway answered solemnly, That's where I used to go to church. (laughs) Even the church of me, myself, and I has problems, right? We can't get along with ourselves sometimes, much less anyone else. Every local church is filled with difficult people because we are difficult people. Now, Ken pointed out to me that after going on vacation, I come back to how to get along with difficult people. That is not an indicator that I was thinking all vacation about how difficult you people are. (laughs) There's there's nothing personal here, please. (laughs) It's just the next passage of Scripture in Hebrews. (laughs) That's the joy of preaching expository messages. Hebrews chapter 12. We begin looking at verse 14. How do you get along with difficult people? Well, you have to work at it. That's the reality of every local church. That's the reality of life. The author of Hebrews gives us a command here in Hebrews 12, 14. Seriously pursue healthy relationships. That's not an option for Christians. Christianity is relational. It is people, working with people. Hebrews 12, verse 14. Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. There are no easy answers. There are no quick fixes. Verse 14 is a command. It is not optional for Christians. It is a command for all of us. And the verb means to run after something. By the way, it can even mean to persecute someone. That's the intensity of the running after that is in view here. This is serious pursuit, not casual commitment. And there are five ways in these next few verses that we are to pursue healthy relationships with one another. First of all, we are to seek peace with everyone. And you just uh, hang tight for a minute. It's warm up here. (laughs) You get out of that so I can preach. (laughs) Seek peace with everyone. Now, 
This by no means is simple, is it? It's not easy to live at peace with other people, with everyone. I mean, we're not even given outs here, right? Well, you can seek peace with this person and this person, but you don't have to with that one. Seek peace with all. Pursue it like a persecutor pursues someone he's persecuting. You see, peace is the mark of every true believer. The Bible makes peace and peacemaking a major characteristic of all followers of God. Shalom, or peace, was a major doctrine of the Old Testament. To have shalom was to have the good life that comes from God. To be at peace with God and therefore to be at peace with one another, with other people. Everyone greeted one another with the greeting, what? Shalom. Wishing peace to one another. Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We celebrate war makers in our culture. God celebrates peacemakers. The heroes of our culture are men and women who stand up for themselves, that independent spirit fighting others to pursue our own goals, our own agendas, achieving success often at the expense of other people. That's what our culture teaches us is a hero. Winning is everything. Nobody celebrates a loser. And peacemakers are often viewed as losers in our world. How often have we gone to watch a movie about peacemaking? Right? It's all about fighting and strength and all of that sort of thing. Jesus says, look, peacemakers are the ones who are called sons of God. We are his children. We show it by peacemaking. Jesus stressed the importance of peacemaking with other believers when he said, Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. He's just finished in this context talking about how as believers we are to be salt and light in this world, in our culture. We are to be salt and light. But what happens when the salt becomes unsalty? When the church starts to lose its influence in the world, in the culture in which we live, how do we become salty again? Well, the answer Jesus gives in this verse is very interesting to me. He says that we are to have salt in ourselves and be at peace with one another. Oftentimes I think we, we, we think that we become salty again, that is, we become influential again in our world by fighting with our culture, right? Attacking the culture about its moral values and all of those sorts of things. But Jesus says we become salty again, we become influential again in our culture as a church when we learn to be at peace with one another. Totally opposite what we think. Let me say it this way. A major reason I believe 
why the church in the United States of America has ceased to be salt in our society is because we're too busy fighting each other. We can't get along. We're not at peace with one another. And that's how you get your saltiness back. The world looks at the church and sees people who can't get along with one another and says, forget it. What do I need you people for? What do I need your message for? You have nothing to say to me. We've lost our saltiness because we've lost our peacefulness. I mean, the world sees enough fights. Fights in families, fights in neighborhoods, fights among countries, fights everywhere. They want to see people who can live in peace with one another. But that isn't easy. That takes hard pursuit. takes work. And peace is a two-way street, isn't it? We can't make peace by ourselves. That's why the focus is on being at peace with one another, pursuing peace with one another. It's our goal. It's our work. If another person refuses to live at peace with us, well, we can't change that reality. We can't change that person. We can only change how we respond. And that's why I love the verse that Paul says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. That verse is loaded with qualifiers, right? (laughs) If it's possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all people. Do everything you can to be at peace with everyone. And you'll be tested this week, believe me. But recognize that some people still will pull away Some people will still reject you. Some people will still refuse to have a healthy, good relationship with you. Live at peace anyway, so far as it depends upon you. Don't wrangle, don't fight, don't criticize, don't speak harshly, don't gossip, don't seek your own selfish wants at the expense of others. Live at peace with everyone as far as it is possible, so far as it depends upon you. Because that will be a tremendous testimony to the world. When they see Christians who live at peace with one another and live at peace with those around them, that's when we can speak and have influence. Secondly, be holy so others can see Christ. So, pursue peace with all men and, and the verb governs both, pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. So that means that peace must not not come at the expense of holiness. We are to live holy lives as well as peaceful lives. The word translated sanctification here means holiness in the sense of personal dedication to the values of God. We are to demonstrate a personal dedication to the spiritual and moral values of God. It's not enough to be holy on Sunday... We must pursue our dedication toward God every day of the week. We must do so at home. We must do so on the job, in our neighborhoods. Now, this is practical holiness. It is not positional holiness. You understand that as Christians, 
Jesus Christ dies on the cross and He makes us holy with God. He makes us right with God and we are saints, we are holy people. That is positional holiness. It's what He accomplishes for us. But practical holiness is how we live that out in our daily lives. And that's what he's talking about here. We are positionally holy before God because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. But we are to live out that holiness in the practical ways of everyday life. And we cannot do this by ourselves. Um, You and I both know every one of us is under construction, right? This is a process, and none of us are perfect. We need God's grace, we need God's strength, God's power to demonstrate practical holiness. Today, tomorrow, this week, on the job, in the neighborhood, in our homes. God saves us by His grace, and He gives us the grace to live holy lives. Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that God's power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Not sort of almost there, but everything you need to live a holy life, God's grace has provided for you and for me. The problem is not God's grace and His provision, it's us. He gives us the resources to live as He wants us to live. So, when the world looks at Christians, they should see people who are, are pursuing practical holiness in their lives. We are not perfect, that is true. We are under construction. The world, however, expects us to be working hard at doing right. They have a right to expect that in our business dealings with other people, we'll not rip people off. We cannot just go to church on Sunday and then rip people off during the week. In our personal lives, we will be honest. We will be truthful. We will obey God's word. Integrity should characterize every Christian in all aspects of our lives. Personal holiness is a mark of true faith. Unfortunately, all too often today, people who claim to be Christians, you know, the ones who make those grandiose testimonies and talk, the Christian talk, are often people who live very unholy lives too. And the world sees that disconnect and is affected by it, and our testimony doesn't ring true. People claim to be Christians, but act just as bad or worse sometimes than the non-Christians in terms of morality and integrity and all of those kinds of basics in life. And that's a huge relational problem for Christians. Notice the phrase, without which no one will see the Lord. Do you see that phrase? Some think that means that if you are not living a holy life, then you will not see the Lord. You'll not be saved. That creates a doctrinal problem because it becomes a works-oriented salvation where I've got to live holy. I've got to live moral in order to see the Lord. 
instead of the fact that God's grace provides my salvation. It becomes a works orientation. We have to work and prove our holiness to be saved. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches at all. And I think we misunderstand this phrase. The verse does not say, without which, you know, pursue holiness, without which you will not see the Lord. It says, pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I think it's talking about a testimony. People cannot see the Lord if we are living unholy lives. The clause probably goes actually with both statements. So if we're not living at peace with one another, people won't see the Lord. And if we're not living holy lives, people aren't going to see the Lord. Why? Where do people see the Lord? In us. We're supposed to be Christ-like, right? Sanctification, by the way, is just a big theological word for how we become increasingly Christ-like in life. The more Christ-like we are in terms of peacemaking and in terms of personal integrity and holiness, the more people can see the Lord in us when we're just as selfish and mean and nasty and immoral as everyone else in this world, then no one can see the Lord in us. So without the pursuit of peace and without the pursuit of holiness, no one can see the Lord. We've obscured Him with our unholy, unpeaceful lifestyles. So we are to be holy so that others can see Christ. I like what one writer observed. Today, everybody and his brother and lover and agent claim to be Christians. When I was a kid, God may not have gotten the recognition he merits, but today he gets more publicity than he deserves. People used to hide their light under a bushel. Today it would be good if someone had the sense not to share their testimony. It's sad, isn't it? But true. Because people will look to see if the words we say are backed up by the lives we live. Third relational principle this morning, care for those who lag behind. Verse 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Is the next phrase. The clause, see to it, in verse 15 actually governs the next three phrases. So there's actually three more principles here. But it's, it's see to it, in verse 15, that no one comes short of the grace of God. Then you could plug in see to it again, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be contaminated or defiled. And then in verse 16, you could plug in see to it again. See to it that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. And then on it goes. So there are three principles here governed by the see to it. The verb see to it means to take care of, or to care for, or to oversee. The noun form was used of an overseer or a supervisor. In fact, in the New Testament, the noun form of this word is the one we get episcopal from. It's the one we get elder or bishop or pass, well, you know, the, the office anyway of pastor, the office of elder or bishop, an overseer, somebody who is a spiritual supervisor. 
Churches were to have overseer, overseers, episcopoi. They were to have overseers who handled the spiritual needs of people. We would call in our culture, in our context, I should say, our tradition, we call them pastors or elders. But here, it's not talking about a special office. It's talking about every believer. And every believer, then, is to be an overseer, to oversee or care for those who come short of the grace of the Lord. The word for come short means to miss or fail to reach the grace. And it was used by shepherds. Shepherds were well familiar with their flock, and they would notice that there was a sheep, or very often a lamb, a young sheep, that was lagging behind, way back, behind all the other rest of the flock. Well, that sheep lagging behind, this is the term they would use for it, because is in danger now of all of the wild animals, right? Picking it off. And so the shepherd was to oversee the flock so that he would look for that sheep that was coming short, lagging behind the flock. And so as Christians, we are to be overseers. Every single one of us is to be an overseer. We are to care for those that we notice are lagging behind Not so much the flock here, but the grace of the Lord. See, God's grace is available to everyone, is it not? God's grace is available to everyone, but some people come short of reaching that grace. Not because God's grace has failed, but because they simply don't lay hold of that grace in their own lives. The fault is in the person who lags behind, who fails to take hold of God's grace to save them. So, it is our job relationally as Christians, every one of us, to care for or pay attention to those that we notice are lagging behind the grace of the Lord that is available to them and failing to take hold of that grace Max Lucado tells about his ministry with Young Life. Every Thursday during a Young Life summer camp that he was involved in, 400 students would take the 14,000-foot climb up to Colorado's Mount Chrysolite. Several Young Life leaders, and Max Lucado was among them during this time as he worked in this Young Life camp, would, of course, take them and go with them on the hike. Every, every week with a different group of campers. On one of those trips, a student named Matthew decided to quit. Got partway up the mountain. I'm not going anymore. I'm quitting. So Lucado coaxed him, begged him, negotiated a plan with him, 30 steps forward, 60-second rest, and on and on they went up the mountain. Finally, they stood within 1,000 feet of the peak, and everybody else had gone up to the top except for Matt and Max Lucado and a few other of the staff. But the last stretch of the trail rose up straight as a fireman's ladder. And there's no way he was going to make it. So they got serious. Two men got on either side of him. Max Lucado got behind him. And they dragged and pushed and pulled him the thousand feet to the top. 
And when they came out above the tree line and they crested the, the top of the mountain, there's 400 young life campers up there and they stand up and break out into a, a standing ovation for Matt because he made it to the top of the mountain. And as Max Lucado collapsed on the top of the mountain for rest, he had this thought. It was as if God was saying, there it is, Max, a perfect picture of my plan. Do all you can to push each other and pull each other to the top. Fourth principle, watch out for bitterness in the body. Fourth relational principle, watch out for bitterness in the body. Once again, we have our word see to it, focusing on another area of relationships. Not only should we care for those who lag behind, we should supervise people so that no root of bitterness springs up, because bitterness can quickly infect a fellowship. Notice what he says, that no root of bitterness springing up, because that's what bitterness does, causes disturbance or trouble, and by it many be contaminated or, con- or defiled. Now, it's a graphic description of the process that takes place in churches everywhere. And it often can end up destroying churches. It is a poison. Bitter, critical, and harsh feelings can poison a small group, a Bible study, and eventually a church. It's an insidious infection, like a cancer in the body. In fact, this clause is drawn from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy where Moses is warning the nation to watch out for and eliminate certain problems among them, most notably idolatry, that infect them as a people. And he says to eliminate it, lest there shall be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood bitterness. Relational responsibility to watch out for that stuff that turns bitter in people's lives and infects others with that same bitterness. The word for bitterness here, because the author of Hebrews takes that whole concept from the nation of Israel, which could be infected as a nation by this idolatry and all of this this bitterness that developed and caused disturbance among them, takes that and applies it to the church. And the word for bitterness that he uses here means to express anger or harsh speaking. It refers to those bitter feelings that rise up in, in people until, you know, the, the bitter feelings, it takes a while sometimes, but they spring up in us and then they come flying out when we least expect it. The bitter feelings from past wrongs that were never forgiven, never let go. We nurse those wrongs. We feed those bitter feelings over the years, over time. And once the bitterness takes root in our souls, it grows. This is an agricultural term. It grows, it springs up inside of us. And we're nursing it. You know, that person did me wrong. That situation was wrong. And we nurse that bitterness until it grows and it springs up. And then the bitterness begins to express itself in 
harsh criticisms of others. Nasty things get said. It, it, people begin to be infected by that because then they begin to express the poison of bitterness too. It happens in small groups, happens in Bible studies, and as the process plays out, that bitterness is infectious and it gets to permeating and infecting a whole church. And in this way, the bitter spirit of one Christian can eventually destroy a whole church. So we could translate this cause, and this is a very important relational principle in a church, see to it that no root of bitterness springing up might cause a disturbance, and by it many might be contaminated, because that's the way bitterness works. There you have it, don't you? That's exactly what happens. As any pastor will tell you, this is the quickest way to poison a fellowship of believers. We talk lots about all kinds of other sin issues, but I'll tell you this, bitterness is the quickest way to poison a fellowship. The antidote to such bitterness is surgery. That's what he's saying. Watch out. Take care of it. Get rid of it before it begins to poison everything. We have to surgically clean out the root of bitterness before it can can contaminate a church fellowship. And that's not a pretty process sometimes. And by the way, sometimes God just does it on his own and starts cleaning house. It's a painful process. Author Rose Sweet writes to tell about the time that she visited her brother Fred, one of the top spine surgeons in the United States. She got to watch him in the operating room, got to gown up and everything, watch him right there in the operating room. The patient was a 12-year-old boy. The boy's leg had almost been severed by an accident on the playground, just below the knee. And Dr. Fred met with him because... Four days earlier, the emergency room doctors had sewn the wound up. They'd sent the boy home, but he developed a high fever. And when it reached 105 degrees, the parents began to be worried. And so they brought him into the hospital in tears. He was very, very sick. It, it turned out that the improperly cleaned wound was still filled with gravel. And some of the skin around the sutures had died and was spreading to the healthy tissue. And the boy's body was, his entire body was racked with an infection from that wound. And the, the fever signaled what was going on behind those stitches. So she watched her brother as after putting the little boy under anesthesia, the 12 year old boy, he, he just tore into his leg and he's ripping stuff out getting rid of that infection and he's cutting away all of the bad tissue and she said it was ugly and it was disgusting but it was the only way to get rid of that stuff that infection now here's the thing every Christian must be on the lookout for this root of bitterness that infects our souls and the souls of others. The infection can spread very quickly. So we have to watch out for it. Where do we watch? First in ourselves, obviously, right? 
Because that root of bitterness can rise up in us over this wrong or that wrong or this problem or that problem, this relational issue or that relational issue and poison us. And we could become the ones who poison and infect others and contaminate them. So watch out for it first in ourselves, but then in everyone else as we have contact with people. Watch out that those things do not begin to infect the fellowship that you have with other believers, with one another. And get rid of the infection before it becomes, comes to the point of destroying that fellowship. All right, fifth principle. Fifth relational principle, warn others to avoid worldliness. Warn others to avoid worldliness. Verses 16 and 17, See to it then that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. And this is the, actually the introduction to a, a warning passage. And you remember in Hebrews there are five major warning passages. This is the introduction to the warning passage that we'll look at in another week. But here he is talking about our responsibility relationally to take care that there be no immoral or godly, godless person like Esau in our midst. See, it's, it's not easy, is it, to live healthy relational lives. This is tough stuff. So it's our responsibility to warn others to avoid worldliness. Actually, to avoid Immorality, which is uh, here sexual immorality, is in view. Now, obviously, we are to warn each other about sexual immorality, so most of us don't have a problem. We understand that we ought to be addressing that in one another. But what does it mean to be godless, the second one? What does it mean to be godless? It doesn't mean here to be an atheist. The word for godless means to value that which is worldly instead of the things that are godly. And the example is Esau from the Old Testament who sold or traded his birthright, that which God would give to him, to Jacob for a pot of stew because he was hungry. So we are to watch out that there is no worldly person like Esau in our fellowship. And I use the word worldly very carefully this morning. And actually with a little bit of fear because we have this tendency to think of worldliness in terms of our own set of little things, you know, little litmus tests that we've decided characterize worldliness and each one of us has our own little set of litmus tests you know might be hair might be dress it might clothing it might be movies it might be whatever it is but we have this little set of litmus tests that's not what worldliness is and so I want to be careful with this term the word really means to value the things of the world more than the things of God Worldliness is not what we have or what we want. Well, that might be a little closer to it. Or even necessarily what we do. 
Worldliness is why we want it, why we do it, and why we have it. It's a mindset, a mentality that values things of this world more than the things of God. That values the things that our culture says are important rather than things that God says are important in his word. It is a mindset, it is a mentality, a value system like Esau's value system. What did Esau do? He traded... He traded what God valued for what he valued. Sold it. Traded it. That is worldliness. Neurologists scan the brains of people, particularly religious people, in a study not too long ago. And and they scanned their brains, particularly as they recalled or re-experience the times in their lives when they felt closest to God. So they would try to help them re-examine that memory, and then they would scan their brains as they were remembering their times of feeling close to God, either in worship or solitude or, or those kinds of things. And then they would also scan their brains as certain images were brought up for them like stained glass or the smell of incense or icons or other religious images that people said were the ways that they felt connected to God or other things that would show their or remember their experiences of being close to God. They found that the same specific area of the brain lit up in all of these people when they felt connected to God in some way. And they called this the God spot. It's really not a God spot in your brain. Just a part of our brain that is activated when we feel connected to the divine, so to speak, or this sense of God. But it gets a little more interesting. Then those neurologists tested another group of people But this time they exposed them to material possessions. When they showed images of certain products that were cool products, you know, things people really wanted to have, right? Guess what lit up in their brains? Exact same God spot, brain spot, lit up. The neuroscientists discovered that people who bought certain items, experienced the same sensations as those who had a deep religious experience. What does that tell us? It tells us that there's a real dangerous thing called idolatry. (laughs) That's exactly what the Old Testament warned us about, right? We can substitute the values of this world for the values of God, and we can get a brain high from that substitution. We can evoke the feelings that God wants to evoke in us with those substitutes. That is worldliness. It is trading the values of God for the values of this world. 
And so what he is saying here is we must look out for one another. As we experience one another, we must look out for one another and notice when someone seems to be trading the values of this world for the values of God in whatever way that is in their lives and warn each other about it so that we avoid that kind of worldliness. All of these things are our relational responsibilities. Tough stuff, this business of pursuing healthy relationships with one another, isn't it? It's not easy. I like what G.K. Chesterton wrote. Love is not blind. That's the last thing that it is. Love is bound. And the more it is bound, the less it is blind. Think about that for a minute. In other words, in our relationships... The more we bind ourselves to each other, the more we commit ourselves to each other, the love is less blind. The less blind we are about each other. We see each other as we really are, with all of our faults and all of our blemishes, but we love each other anyway because we're bound, we're committed. And it is that kind of love that is the glue in every marriage, in every family. It is the glue in every group of Christians who bind themselves to one another. It's not that we don't see the faults, the flaws. It's that we see them even more. And we're willing relationally to address them because we are bound by our love for one another. That's Christian love. You know, many people are looking for community, a community of faith. Many people try this church, they try that church, they end up in disappointment. Why? They're not bound. They don't commit. They see the flaws. You hear it, right? I'm not going to go to that. There's too many flaws there. I'm not going to go to that church, that group of people. There's a lot of flaws. There's a lot of failures there. Yep, there sure is. There's a lot of flaws among us and in us. In me. That's not what church is all about. It's not hiding our face from those flaws. It's binding ourselves to one another and caring for one another in those flaws. That's what makes healthy relationships. But it starts up front with the binding. If you don't take that step, The rest of it isn't going to happen. So don't be afraid to be bound so that you don't have to be blind. Father, teach us and help us this week to love one another as you would have us love one another. As we are a part of your body, the body of Christ, as we are a part of this fellowship here, Bind us together in your love, I pray. For we are your people. In Jesus' name, amen.